0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Sulkinette in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is still on his Virginia sojourn. How are things in Virginia, Frank? I am still in Charlottesville. Things in Virginia are great, David. Thank you very much. Right. Um, On this President's Day week, uh, we thought we would talk about uh, President Carter, uh, in large part because uh, it was announced earlier this week that, that President Carter, who is, I believe, 98 years old, uh, is entering hospice and is uh, yeah, likely to, to uh, pass away in the next, well, who knows how long, uh, but he is at the end of his life and would be a good time to reflect upon his presidency and his uh, life more broadly because um, he's a very interesting figure and a figure whose who, who's assessment by historians is saying has changed pretty dramatically since he left the White House. Do you think that's a fair assessment, Frank?
1: I think that is a fair assessment. As as most of our listeners will know, he's the longest living former president. He has had the longest post-presidency of any president. I believe he was the first president to live to see the 40th anniversary of his inauguration. So, so, Jimmy Carter has had a very long and full life. He's had a very interesting life. Um, both prior to and after the presidency. And I think um, historians and and commentators more generally, when they see his life in the round, are quite uh, positive in their assessment of him, but they're very, very critical. You know, these sort of rankings of presidents Mm. that come out periodically, they're generally quite critical of his presidency. And that remains true, although there's a reassessment going on. Yeah, I I think Um,
0: he's moved up the the rankings over the past... Thirty years, I think he was 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 pretty low, you know, soon after he left the White House, and I think he's now somewhere in the middle.
1: Well, that might be a testimony to this, the presidents of the subsequent thirty years.
0: Uh, I think oh, that's in part, so. but I think you know that they used to used to be the trope. Uh, I think you heard this a lot, you know, say twenty years ago, that he was a, a mediocre to bad president, but a, a great post president. That's right, yeah. uh, and I think the the great post presidency bid is still everyone, I think still um, is more or less agreement, with that, but I think the the presidency itself has gone and undergone some pretty substantial uh, reevaluation in in the past twenty years. So uh, yeah,
1: that's right, that's right. So I mean, David, when I I mean, do you do you remember Carter's presidency?
0: Uh, so I was I was born uh, uh, in in the first year of of the Carter uh, presidency, so. Uh, I can't say I have many, <laughs> Frank was making rude gestures to me on the screen. Listeners. Um, uh, so yes, uh, I, I, uh, I have no direct memories of, of the Carter presidency, although we moved, my, my family moved to DC, uh, in, in 1980. Uh, and so we, uh, moved basically right at the time that, that all the, uh, the Carter people were leaving and the Reagan people were were, uh, uh, showing up in town. In fact, small historical footnotes about my life that nobody really cares about. Uh, The house we moved into in DC was Cyrus Vance's house. Who was Cyrus Vance? Cyrus Vance, sorry, uh, who was the Secretary of State uh, under Carter and who resigned after the attempt to uh, rescue the uh, reigning hostages did not go well. Uh, and so when he resigned, he decided to leave D.C. and opened up his house. Uh, and we, I think, rented it for a couple of years. And so his there's...
1: son, Cyrus Vance, is a prosecutor in New York now, isn't he? He's been he involved is. in Trump-related uh, investigations, if memory yes. serves.
0: Yeah, Yes, he has. Uh, so, so that's my memory. What about you, Frank? You, you have... Uh, some greater age than I have. have uh, I am of greater age members. than
1: you, David. And I do remember, I have a distinct, I mean, I was a kid. I hasten to have, but I do remember Carter's election. I have a kind of memory of the of the 1976 uh, presidential campaign. I have a memory of not really, um, I remember there was sort of um bemusement about carter at least in my um well not in my circle i didn't have a circle i was a kid in Massachusetts. i remember my mother who was very elementary school circle
0: my mother
1: was who was very very political and very interested in politics um was bemused by jimmy carter and not quite knowing what to make of him uh so i have a memory of that and i do have kind of childhood memories of his of his presidency and and you know, that narrative of failure and weakness took hold pretty early, you know, whether it was him saying, you know, wear sweaters, you know, because there was the energy crisis was on and, uh, you know, things that seemed quite sensible, you know, were, were, were uh, didn't really have spin doctors then, but were spun against him to make him look weak and ineffectual. And that narrative took hold. And I mean, we need to back up and do this more comprehensively. But and then the hostage crisis exacerbated that. He never really kind of seemed to get beyond that. But I think the record shows it's actually quite a considerable record of achievement during his presidency. And as we say, his career on, uh, both
0: prior and after the presidency is, is really remarkable, actually. Well, maybe a place to start then is with, with your mother's amusement with his his candidacy in 1976, because he was a relatively obscure figure before that. He'd been governor of Georgia. He'd been in the state legislature. He had been a peanut farmer. He had been in the the Navy, uh, but he was not a well-known national figure when he announced his candidacy in December of 1974. Um, You know, there were a number of, of Democrats who were much better known people whose 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 potential candidates, these are candidates, these people were, were taking seriously. And I think most people's response to Jimmy Carter when he announced that he was running for president was, you know, who the hell is this guy? Um... That's right. You got to remember,
1: this is a pre-internet age. It, the media landscape was really the three big networks, and that was that. So he was a really unfamiliar figure. Again, I, I'm mm. re- reflecting on this or remembering this as a child in New England. So so make of that what you will. But as I said, I, my mother is. This is anecdote. My mother's an example of one, but she was pretty switched on politically and really followed this stuff closely, and really didn't know much about him. I think one thing that one of the first things I do have an abiding memory of this because it was, you know, he came from, you know, he was a Southern Baptist. He came from a faith tradition that was certainly alien to me and to my experience um, then. And that was a little you know, I, I, cause for concern would be overstating it. It was a cause for confusion. Now, we have a better sense of the intersection of religion and politics, particularly Southern Baptists, mm. <laughs> baptism and, and politics in the subsequent 50 years. Although Carter came from a although he came from the Southern Baptist tradition, he came from a very different political pers- perspective than most Southern Baptists or and certainly most Southern Baptists since then. Mm. Uh, and so so he was he was a kind of rare plant then you know to to the rest of the country, I think,
0: um, and, and who didn't really know what to make of him. Well, the New York Times sent Norman Mailer down to Plains, Georgia, to interview right. Carter, and, and you know the juxtaposition between the sort of urbane Mailer and and the you know Carter teaching Sunday school was was quite profound and sort of the, the fish out of water for the, these reporters trying to make sense of who is this person, you know what exactly is you know, how does he fit into our usual framework about how we think about uh, sort of politicians and their relationships to their faith. Um, you know, one of the things that, that Carter did, I think, that is, has shaped politics since then is he campaigned very extensively, very early. Yeah. Um, you know, he did. Uh, he visited 37 states before pretty much any other Democrat had announced their candidacy. So he you know, did this work of introducing himself to the to the nation. Um, and he was very much seen as a political outsider, even though he'd been a governor of a, of a major, somewhat major state. Um, you know, he was not a product of Washington. And I think in the aftermath of Watergate, even, you know, Democrats who were, had Washington ties were seen as being slightly, you know, suspect or polluted by that kind of politics. And so I think he, you know, Carter represented a, a promise of a very different kind of, of outsider politi- politician.
1: Well, that's right. I, I mean, I, I want to get to that, but I just I want to comment on his his southernness because I mm. think, again, in 1974, 75, 76, when he's running, I mean, Lyndon Johnson had recently been president, but but southern presidents weren't really a common thing at that point or, no. or or Johnson was seen as an outlier. And the South was still seen as a kind of exceptional region, I think it was not. You know, I think the South has come in many respects has come to dominate American culture and political culture since then. But at that point, that was not the case. So he was an outlier and in, in terms of his origins. I think um, his background was, was very, un, seemed to be unusual. He had been a a, you know, a peanut farmer, of course, as well as a nuclear engineer in the yes. Navy. Um, he, he was he sometimes portrayed as sort of this, oh, shucks, folksy, dummy, uh, again, playing on non-southern stereotypes about the south uh that I think people got wrong. Uh but I but I think that it's difficult for us to appreciate how um how different that was in politics, at least in the in politics outside the South, uh to, to uh to, to to other Americans then. And I think that outsiderness um it's a terrible more neologism I've just coined um, was was important to his appeal. I think I think after Watergate, I think the very fact that he was a Sunday school teacher who had no seemingly no ties to Washington hmm. was exactly what the country wanted. In in a similar way, I think uh, th- there are some resonances with with Joe Biden's election back in in um, in twenty twenty. Joe so Biden, of course, was not an outsider; he's the no, ultimate he's insider, the inside, I mean, exactly he's, he's right, Mister Insider. But but Biden, you know, seemed one part of Biden's appeal was the fact that he, um, you, know, f- a few years ago, was the fact that he seemed to be a refreshing change from the kind of drama of the Trump years. And similarly, I think um, I think there was a, a big part of Carter's appeal hmm. was the kind of once people got over. Uh, Exoticism might be overstating it, but the the fact that he was unusual, at least for for many non-Southerners at that point, uh, he was a kind of reassuring presence in contrast to the seeming chaos of the Nixon years or the end of the Nixon years. years. And that was a key part of his electoral success in 1976.
0: Yeah. And Ford was seen as as, uh, President Ford was seen as compromised, not only because of association with Nixon, but the, the pardon of Nixon. Hurt him as did the the oil crisis in 1973 that was still having uh, you know profound economic consequences. So I think you know Carter benefited from all of those things. The other thing from his campaign, I think we should mention, uh, is his interview in in November of 1976 with Playboy magazine, uh, which Playboy back in the day did serious interviews with serious people, I suppose. I wasn't around then to, to, to uh, consume the magazine, but he was famously asked whether he'd ever uh, committed adultery. Uh, and, and he gave a very Sunday school answer, which was that, that he had lusted in his heart and, and therefore, in the eyes of God, he had committed adultery, which is um, a kind of answer that only Jimmy Carter could give in Playboy in 1976.
1: Um <laughs> I mean, Jimmy Carter wa- was and remains incredibly honest when he gives interviews, <laughs> yes. and, and 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 again, I think that was in that particular moment that came across uh, his kind of honesty and genuineness came across and was a particular asset mm. in the aftermath of 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 Watergate. It does belie his toughness. There's a there was an article in the an op-ed piece in the New York Times a couple of days ago by Kai Bird, who's a who's a Carter. Biographer who basically, one of the points he made the headline was Jimmy Carter's presidency was wasn't what you think it was, um, but but Bird you know said Carter was incredibly hardworking and he was also tough he was both hmm. tough to to work for and and to uh, he, he was a formidable opponent and I, I think because of the his honesty his honesty and his um, uh, religiosity I think uh, made people underestimate him.
0: I think I think that's right. So let's talk about about his presidency. Maybe a good place to start he is: Do I do domestic stuff first or foreign affairs stuff first? Uh, let's start domestic. Why not? Sure. But, okay. Uh, what What do you think are the the big events in, in his uh, domestic agenda? Um, I
1: guess uh, the creation of the departments of energy and education, and uh, but there there are just things. Again, David, you won't remember this because you're just a callow youth. Uh, (laughs) You know, seatbelts and Hmm. airbags—little things like that, things that we take for granted. Um, You know, safety. You know, I'm old enough to remember when there were no seatbelts in cars, or there were seatbelts, but you didn't use them. They just kind of. Three in the car and let you roll around and <laughs> hope for the best. Um, and those kind of, um, you know, safety improvements were, were really important. He made a lot of judicial appointments, although he didn't get to put, appoint anybody to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, solar energy.
0: Um, yeah, he, he put solar panels on the White House, right? I think, that's you right. Know, and, and you're thinking about sort of somebody who is saying things that, that now – 40 years later, it seemed like both common sense and the direction of travel, you know, in terms of creating renewable energy, to, you know, re- decreasing rely, uh, reliance on foreign oil in terms of, you know, environmental protection, he, he's under guard that the EPA creates the super fund after That's uh, right. Love Canal, you know, the idea that you can need a Department of Energy to manage that particular, you know, both, uh, you know, uh, to manage energy, uh, that we need to educate, you know, all these things, I think, you know, seem very pressing today.
1: That's right. And also on, on his first or second day in office, he pardoned the Vietnam draft evaders who went to Canada yeah. or elsewhere. And, and again, at the time that was seen as almost a kind of sign of weakness, but, but, um, he recognized that the country needed to come together after mm. the kind of dual traumas of the defeat in Vietnam and and the um and the Watergate scandal um and i think that signaled a kind of um, well a kind of humanity in carter that that mm. again was some was controversial at the time but i think uh, you know has been vindicated with the passage of time
0: i think that's right and and the juxtaposition between I think his pardoning of the, the Vietnam Draft Dodgers versus Ford's pardoning of Richard Nixon, I think sort of speaks to, speaks to that change. Um, in addition, uh, he deregulated the airline industry. So I think he is to uh, blame or, or, or be praised for, for the current state of the airline industry in the United States, which I think has been derived in large part from that moment.
1: Um, yeah, it's, uh, it remains to be seen whether that is something that, that we should, whether that's a credit or debit for him. For him
0: yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's the reason why you know, airline prices have gone down significantly, but so is the uh, quality of the airline experience. Um, but it did democratize uh, air travel in a, in a variety of ways. He also, and this is, this is definitely a success, uh, deregulated beer. Yeah, so the craft
1: brewery movement is possible
0: yeah no and i i mean i don't remember this because i was not drinking beer in the 1970s um but the the status of, of uh, beer availability was was profoundly limited as a large part of consequence of, of regulations put in both during prohibition and immediately thereafter and uh which basically made it very hard to create craft beers or to brew beer at home uh and and carter fixed all that and so the the craft beer revolution of the the 90s i think has its origins in the deregulation of the 70s so
1: yeah and it's interesting because um carter uh, despite the, the kind of image of him as a kind of sunday school teacher um and southern baptist was quite liberal and tolerant on social issues, whether it was beer drinking or, you know, he's a big music fan and he he loved Willie Nelson and the Allman Brothers and Willie Nelson famously smoked pot at the White House or on the White House roof, probably where where the solar panels were um, (laughs) during a visit during the Carter presidency. Now, there's no suggestion that Carter indulged in this, but, you know, Carter was sometimes portrayed as a sort of fussy stick in the mud. Mm. um, and, And that doesn't seem to have been the case actually.
0: Yeah, he he seems to also have been friends, thinking about uh, musical friends with Elvis near the end of Elvis's. That's right, Um, that's right. So those are the things about his domestic presidency that I think went well. What are the things that, that didn't go well? Well,
1: there was stagflation. We've had episodes on stagflation in the past. The energy crisis really, really lingered and took hold. Um, you know solar panels were great on the white House but solar panels weren't really a viable alternative for most Americans at the time um the the energy crisis and and, and the the and we're, we're, we're dealing with an energy crisis right now so people can that can resonate mm-hmm. whether those were Jimmy Carter's fault or not you know he might have simply been unlucky but those those are issues there weren't huge pieces of landmark legislation. I mean, he did kind of reorient government in important ways, as I said, creating the Departments of Energy and Education. But, you know, he suffered as an outsider. And we often see this with presidents who are outsiders. Uh, that, you know, outs- the, the, the appeal of outsiders to the electorate is is quite strong. The pull uh, is quite strong. But when they get to Washington, outsiders often struggle because they don't know how to get legislation, get get stuff done um and, and carter you know his relations with congress including his own party weren't great no, they
0: weren't. um
1: and, and so the legislative his legislative achievements at a time when the democrats had pretty significant majorities weren't great
0: frankly well i mean it, it depends on you know he doesn't have the you know the signature stuff. stuff yeah to be sure and i think one of the, the issues and i think several of his biographers have pointed to this is he had a tendency to micromanage things, and he, he tended right. to be a both a diligent student and study matters very effectively, but also get very much into the weeds rather than, um, you know, he had issues with trying to do, do tax reform, and you know instead of letting Congress work on the details or letting economists work on the details, he tried to actually sort of learn the tax code himself and and do much of that work. Uh, which didn't get him the kind of allies that he kind of needed for that. Let's talk about his foreign affairs because I think much of his presidency is is shaped by uh, a number of interesting developments in the in that arena. Do you wanna? What do you think are the highlights in terms of the foreign affairs for, for Carter?
1: Sure. I mean, it, it's ironic because, as you say, David, foreign affairs did kind of arguably cost him re-election uh, in terms of the Iran hostage crisis mm. and the Iranian Revolution and his response to it. But he has some pretty significant achievements in the in, in the realm of international relations. So the most prominent is probably the Camp David Accords um, and, and helping to uh, bring about peace between Israel and Egypt, and really removing Egypt from the list of Israel's adversaries, or at least its open adversaries. <laughs> and mm. that was a main achievement. Um, he also was willing to criticize Israel, which is rare was and remains rare among Amer- American politicians but particularly democrats then uh, on on um some of its policies in terms of uh, building settlements and so on uh, but but the cap david accords i think are near the top the salt 2 treaty uh we've just seen um uh, vladimir putin has repudiated the, the latest arms control pulled out of the latest arms control uh talks with the united states but the salt 2 treaty the cold war was still go, was still mm hot exactly um in, in in the late 1970s and the salt treaty was important the uh, panama canal treaty uh, was another uh, big achievement again he suffered for that because people saw the the, the panama canal treaty and, and returning the canal to the, the to to panama as a um as a kind of sign of American weakness and decline uh but but Carter had a lot of faith and did in his post presidency as well in in diplomacy and the power of diplomacy and these were pretty significant achievements what, do, what what are your takeaways
0: David um so I think you're right in terms of the the you know one of the things I think he's doing is he's sort of reevaluating I mean, what are the principles upon which American foreign policy would be based um you know and he, he is he's i think stepping away from um, kind of a realpolitik model of american foreign policy where you know what matters is power and outcome and i think he very much thought that that foreign policy and questions of human rights should be thought of in the same conversation um and you know he reached out to africa sub-saharan africa in a way that no American president had done before and, and very few have done since. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the tricky bits for him um, in terms of the foreign policy would be uh, obviously the the revolution in Iran and his response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, you know, the, the Iranian hostage crisis, I think, was one of the things that really did doom his reelection chances. Um, and I think the, his response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was, whether it was the appropriate response, he, he they imposed a grain embargo on the Soviet Union, which alienated actually many American farmers who had traditionally been Democrats. Um, and he also boycotted the 1980 Olympics, which didn't seem to be a particularly uh, effective strategy. Um, I think both of those episodes really did damage him you know leading it right into the the election or the
1: well they fed a narrative of weakness yes right and 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 uh combined with some of the domestic economic problems which may have been beyond his control um he he had a he had he had a he had a big challenge in front of him in 1980 running against ronald reagan who was you know announced that it was morning in america and Mm. um presented a much more optimistic and um, sunny disposition at least, or or at least at that point he did. There's a little irony in all this in the 1980 election uh, because uh, Reagan was presented as this cowboy figure because he'd played one in the movies and Carter was seen as a sort of feckless ineffectual, uh, sometimes referred to as a wimp. Um, You know, in 1952, when he was a nuclear engineer in the Navy uh, during the Chalk River nuclear accident in Canada, Carter was on the team that kind of went into the nuclear reactor to help deal with that. You know, put on a hazmat suit and went into a nuclear reactor to deal with a crisis. Ronald Reagan did nothing like that in his life. I mean, uh, Jimmy Carter's record as a kind of um you know the, the the image of Jimmy Carter is not entirely at odds with the with the uh reality of his biography but, but he just act, but, but Reagan acted
0: with a with a chimpanzee and, and Carter yeah, so, never did that
1: <laughs> that's so, true
0: um, um yeah, 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 it, it, it,
1: it,
0: and Reagan obviously was better at the television television and doing that kind of uh you know public presentation that then Carter was
1: um,
0: so so david
1: david david the one thing
0: we haven't discussed which I think we have to though
1: is civil rights Hmm. because Carter, as we mentioned, is is a Southern president. Um, He came of age. I mean, he was born in the 1920s Hmm. uh, in Georgia. He came of age in a segregated place, in a segregated country. Um, Where is he on civil rights?
0: That's really tricky, I think. And, and, And looking at his, especially his, period before he gets elected governor of Georgia. He seems to be articulating multiple different positions depending on the particular race he's running and and the the context. Um, He's a Democrat, which was the party of segregation in the South. Um, He is oftentimes running against other segregationists um, there are times when he was critical of Martin Luther King uh, during the 1960s when, when King was still alive, um, you know, and there were times when he spoke out against the civil rights movement. There are other times in which he spoke out in favor of, of certain kinds of, of civil rights uh, of legislation and activities. So, he, you know, before his presidency, he's kind of a mixed bag. Um, I think he becomes... More progressive on civil rights issues once he's, uh, once he's in the governor's mansion um, in Georgia and once he's president. Um, but I think there's an evolution of thinking, his thinking uh, before that in the in the 50s and 60s, um, which is think.
1: not unlike what a lot of white liberals, not just in the South but in the United States, it was the the kind of journey hmm. that a lot of um, white Americans made. During that period, so he's not he's not unusual in that. Uh, yeah. I think
0: you know there was one of the people he was running against for, for governor in in Georgia was praising Martin Luther King, and he criticized that person he was running against for for being a King supporter, um, which I think is an interesting you know position for him to take. And I think, but I think you're right; he was um, like many. White liberals in the South, you know, somebody who, whose views were were evolving, and, and once you know, there were many times, at least if you read his memoirs, you know, he had many thoughts about segregation that he was afraid to articulate publicly, which is either a sign of um, political wisdom or or slight cowardice, depending on how you want to frame it. Um, obviously, in his post presidency, he's he's been a, a very different kind of a figure. Um, You know, one of the peoples he was primarily running against in 1976 in the Democratic uh, campaign was George Wallace, who was, you know, the sort of absolute, you know, segregationist. Uh, But he was also running against, you know, uh, theoretically, Ted Kennedy, who didn't actually throw his hat in the ring, but everyone thought he might. Hubert Humphrey, um, you know, a variety of other figures, uh, Jerry Brown, who were more progressive. It's kind of hard to pin down where he falls in the political spectrum, you know. He's not really a liberal democrat. If liberal democrats, you know, people like Ted Kennedy didn't I think uh, approve of, of Carter. Um and I think he wasn't a con- he wasn't a segregationist, he wasn't the George Wallace and, and you know and I think they're pinning him down uh within that sort of range of, of figures in the Democratic Party in the 70s is can be a bit tricky.
1: Yeah, I mean I think he's uh you know it's it's his evolution is that of many white southern democrats in the middle of this of some white southern democrats in the middle of the century um which is that he comes around on civil rights but his his family was had endured its share of kind of economic ups and downs mm. when he was very small and so they benefited from the new deal and so I, I, and he worked in agricultural So, so I, I think he's a kind of uh, conventional, and I don't say that in a critical way, white Southern Democrat who, well, not a segregationist and not necessarily comfortable with the kind of racial attitudes of the Southern Democratic Party. Also, you know, was on a journey when it came to to rebutting those, mm. uh, or eventually, but but you know it was kind of believed in the power of the state, and so he's not as liberal as the people you're talking about. Well, it's pretty easy for Jerry Brown and Ted Kennedy, who were born, sure. born to wealth, but also in California and Massachusetts Too respectively, sure. to embrace their liberalism because the 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 environment in which they they were operating was very different.
0: Yeah, I think I think there are actually a, a decent number of, of white Democrats from that period. Terry Sanford comes to mind, who of a right. similar kind of complexity with their with their stance towards towards civil rights. Uh, so let's talk about his post presidency, because he, as you pointed out, has has this enormously long post presidency. Uh, what, what are the, what are the big achievements, or milestones, or, or characteristics of of his post presidential years?
1: Well, for one thing, he, you know, it's very long. Uh, but he also has made a lot of use of that time. He did not really go on the speaking circuit to aggrandize himself and make lots of money.
0: He's like written Reagan. a lot.
1: He's written a lot. So um, He's written several memoirs, but he's also written fiction. Um, he's written which is poetry?
0: So yeah. He's
1: written like a bunch of stuff.
0: Some of it's yeah, good, he, some of
1: it's not as good. Um, his historic novel on the revolution is not great. Um uh, but but anyway, so but the irony is he found time to write all this stuff while doing other things. So the, yeah. probably the thing he's mo- best known for, the two things are he is um, working with the charity Habitat for Humanity to build housing for, for low income uh, people. Um, and, and there are lots of images of him, you know, out there swinging a hammer. Uh, and he's been very he has been very active in Habitat for Humanity. And of course, he established the Carter Center in Atlanta. Which is really dedicated to civil rights. I mean, he's definitely he's made the journey on civil rights. He's a strong promoter of civil rights, mm-hmm. um, but also democracy, both at home and abroad. And so he has, you know, p- people from the Carter Center, including Carter himself, have acted as election monitors in various hotspots around the world. He's been an outspoken advocate for the the you know, for laws to protect voting rights. Uh, he has been critical of most of his successors mm. um uh, which again we 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 don't we, we don't always associate carter with that but he's been quite critical of his, his most of his successors uh including in his own party he and bill clinton never really enjoyed a close relationship um and you get the sense that he thought bill clinton was a pretty immoral guy mm. uh and so so they despite both being white southerners uh, are not terribly we're not close. And, and
0: former governors and and you know yeah. moderates there's a great they picture be... actually of the two of them together when um bill clinton had just been an uh, elected governor of, of arkansas and he's shaking hands with the president
1: that's um, right and bill clinton has a huge amount of hair in that photo
0: <laughs> yes and a huge smile that he's uh, yeah. yeah
1: yeah i mean so they they should be obvious kind of compadres but they're not um uh, and, and he was uh, he was he was critical of the invasion of Iraq, um, and he was well. He welcomed President Obama's election. Uh, he only became critical of Obama's use of of drones and surveillance and so on. So he's he's been pretty consistently he's been a consistent voice in promoting civil rights and democracy via the Carter Center, as well as public health,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and there's a lot of efforts there. I mean, I think because of this reevaluate reassessment of his presidency his longevity and his good works, frankly, Mm. uh, in the, in the past 40 years, he's achieved a status um, particularly since Nelson Mandela died of being kind of almost the world's conscience. I mean, I think when he passes away, there will be a a quite profound outpouring uh, and quite sincere outpouring of grief over that, because I, I, I don't know who the, you know, when, when Nelson Mandela died, you could say, well, who, who's who occupies that role? Is the kind and of it, global. And they were conscience.
0: close friends at, at at the end of Mandela's life.
1: I That's right. You know who who will occupy that role, and it was well Jimmy Carter. Well, I don't know who's next. You know, right. Bono, big... God help us. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh,
0: but, but I think you're right in terms of a, a global figure who had had the trust of 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 people around the world as to be a a, a fair dealer and a you know independent arbiter of of. Know, elections or, or questions about human rights.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the reasons he was he's has slightly been at odds with the other members of the former president's mm. club is because he's willing to criticize them. Though mm. he was willing to criticize them in office, but that has given him the kind of moral capital, if you will, because mm. of his willingness to uh,
0: you know to addressing justice where he sees it. The other thing that strikes me about his life post presidency is how accessible he's been. That that most former presidents, you know, either go back to their ranch and paint, or or hang out at their beach, or or they jet around the world talking to important people. Carter, at least my impression, I've I've never had the privilege of meeting him, but I know many many people who encountered Carter. uh, You know, especially people who live in Georgia, but people who live elsewhere who. Who you know found him very accessible and somebody who was willing to meet and talk with people in a way that that uh, was unique. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could see him at church on Sunday, the, exactly, know, right?
1: You know, or um, elsewhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, in fact, I've got I know one or two people who've met him and we came away very, very impressed. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what's so what? What's our kind of final assessment then?
0: Well, you know, I think in, in thinking about what the presidency had meant in the 20th century, you know, and the direction the presidency has taken since then, he's kind of a very odd outlier, I think. He, he strikes me as somebody who, who um, was often blamed for things that weren't necessarily his fault and wasn't given necessarily credit for the things that he did well. I think he foresaw lots of the major, you know, issues that the country and the world will be facing um so you know, i think he, he's I'm, I'm very happy to see that his presidency is being reconsidered in, in that light um
1: one other we, we need to mention his wife Roses, oh, sure. too because she's still alive and they've been married for 76 or 77 yeah, yeah, years yeah, at this yeah. point
0: which is married um, in the mid 40s or something right yeah wow.
1: which, which is incredible uh yes. and seemed to be a really uh close and loving relationship and 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 they kind of come
0: as a pair uh, i think well i think he, you know, he was asked what what he attributed his long life to and he said a happy marriage which i think is a speaks for itself yeah um so uh we we wish president carter uh, uh all good health uh for the remainder of his days and, and, and a gentle passing uh but uh yes keep 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 him in our thoughts a life well lived to be sure um yes without a doubt uh time for time for last drops frank what you got
1: Okay, I want to recommend a po- David, as you know, uh, baseball season is around the corner, and I, I think listeners know that both you and I are baseball fans. Yes, I want to recommend, uh, and there is a historical link to this, so so bear with me for a second. I want to recommend the podcast Effectively Wild, okay. which is hosted by Meg Rowley and and Ben Lindbergh. Um, it's it's a FanGraphs um, uh, podcast, and and it's a very quirky take on baseball in their... Uh, I'm, I'm a couple of weeks behind, uh, but I was listening to episode 1954. So they've done a lot more episodes. That's a than lot we of episode. episodes.
0: That's a lot. It's of episodes. pretty
1: much daily. Um, uh, in episode 1954, they interviewed two academics, uh, Daniel Eck, um, who's a statistics professor at the University of Illinois, and Adrian Burgos Jr., who's a history professor at the University of Illinois. And Eck and Burgos have developed a system. For assessing and comparing baseball players across history, so you know, and one of the things—it was a very interesting discussion about historical that became a discussion about historical memory in this episode, uh, because as a baseball is one of the few sports, at least of the 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 major North American sports, uh, where people overvalue former players in the past at the expense of those in the present. Hmm. We don't claim that you know, basketball players from the 1940s are better than LeBron James.
0: No, not what he said. But that.
1: people routinely say, well, of course, Babe Ruth is better than Aaron Judge. Um, and 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 they said, well, they, they as a historian and statistician, they've come together. And, and so, well, first of all, you got to allow for the fact that uh, because of segregation, a certain proportion of the population was not in competition against those players in the past and we have to factor that in on the other hand baseball in the early part of the 20th century had a sort of place in the wider culture that was much more profound than it is today and so so all the best athletes are playing it except Mm. for those who are being excluded on the basis of their race So, so it's a very interesting discussion it's an interesting discussion about um how we remember, how we choose to remember, and trying to um, apply statistics to uh, assessing people across history—I don't know. You know, make of it what you will. I did think, because I was thinking about this episode. Oh, we ought to have some kind of metric, like wins above replacement, to assess yeah. presidents across time, because clearly, you know, the international challenges facing. The early presidents of the United States, while significant, are not the equivalent of those facing presidents after the Second World War. So we need a similar kind of metric if we're going to assess American presidents. I thought about that this week because of President's Day. Uh, But but anyway, I can recommend Effectively Wild to you. And if you want to start with. Episode 1954, you could do a lot worse. You could go back to the beginning and listen to all 2,000 episodes if you want to, but it would take a lot of
0: time. (laughs) Yes, that's a a commitment. Um,
1: What's your your last drop, David?
0: uh, So I was fascinated by a story from, uh, I guess it's a couple weeks ago now, um, about an artillery shell that was uh, found in uh, Gettysburg National Military Park. Uh, this is near Little Round Top, uh, which uh, many listeners may know is a, a site of an important part of the second day at Gettysburg, where there were lots of artillery shells and other things fired. Um, and there's been some landscaping been done to that part of the park recently. And in the process, and, and some guy with a metal detector, they found a artillery shell, a Confederate artillery shell that had not exploded. Uh, and so they uh, quickly had to call out the uh guess the military bomb squatters whoever it is is responsible for dealing with these kinds of things uh and so after taking some photos of the the artillery shell uh they quickly uh dug a big hole and disposed of it by blowing it up so um, they blew it up they didn't yes. seek to disarm it uh, well they, they the explanation was that disarming these things is, are pretty hard especially when they're 150 years old and that the supposition is that they you know these things they should consider them live and Till they have evidence that they're not. Um and, and you know, even a 150-year-old shell can be very, very dangerous. Um, and you see stories like this a lot in Europe when you still you know you right. find With World War, 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 2 War shells War. Uh, all the time and they have to evacuate wherever uh because of it. But uh I've walked over that hill a lot of times and 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 probably walked within five feet of uh of that artillery shell. And I'm very grateful that it didn't explode uh, when I was walking over it, because that would have been a problem. So,
1: <laughs> so yes, I, I agree with that. So, so do we have, is this a great loss to knowledge in the sense that, mm. I mean, do we, do we have ordinance from the civil war?
0: We have tons of ordinance. Not, well. Okay. We, so we've got, we've got tons of Our artillery shells. We've got lots of shell fragments. We've got lots and lots of bullets. I've got some bullets here in my office. Like, there's just tons of that stuff. There's, they're all over the place. Okay, Um, so, 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 blowing this thing up was the right decision. Yes, I mean, there are some people who said, "Oh, we should put it in the museum," and and they said, "No, it's not really either safe or or necessary." Um, But uh, you know, it's interesting to see that these weapons of war from 150 years ago uh, are still quite potentially dangerous, and underground. Um, And something in the story didn't write about, but I think some historians are picking up on this potentially. Some of the Confederate artillery shells uh, that were fired at Gettysburg were manufactured using enslaved labor. And there has an argument been made in the past that uh, some enslaved people who were working on making artillery shells may have sabotaged them um, to obvious reasons, and so maybe the reason why this shell didn't explode was that uh, the enslaved person making it uh, messed it up on purpose. But
1: uh, I mean, uh, sorry, one follow-up question. Have they discovered lots of, I mean, were lots of unexploded shells found in the aftermath, uh, presumably in the late 19th century. I'm not yes. talking about today, but I mean, w- was there a problem of yes. what we see in Europe and unfortunately are likely to see in the broader Middle East and in Ukraine in coming years?
0: Yes, there were there were lots, you know, there, were, there was a whole industry of, of scavenger hunters trying to find things. And obviously some of the things they found were, were, were dangerous. I don't think there's any accounts of people being injured by them, but uh, people have found unexploited artillery shells all the time. Um, usually not in a very highly trafficked part of a major battlefield, but uh, there's still lots of the remnants out there. So
1: right. watch your step, people.
0: Yeah, uh, be <laughs> careful. Exactly. Right. Uh, until next week, Frank. Cheers. All right. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for north america at the university of edinburgh the whiskey rebellion is available on itunes stitcher and podbean you can follow the show on twitter at WhiskyRebelPod pod and like the show on facebook for updates about current and future episodes